Well, let's think together now about John, about John. And we see that really in verses 76 through 80, verses 76 through 80 of the passage that Brian read for us from Luke chapter 1. And I want us to take these characters in the opposite order in which they appear in Zechariah's prophecy. The the reason for that is that I want us this morning to leave thinking about Jesus. I want us to, to leave this morning with Jesus being at the forefront of our minds. And so we'll deal with John first. Now, the thing that we noticed as Brian read that passage for us was that neither character is actually mentioned by name, are they? If you look at Luke chapter 1 and the verses that Brian read for us, you won't find Jesus and you won't find John. You won't find these characters mentioned by name. And actually, it's a bit confusing trying to work out, well, is Zechariah talking about one figure or is he talking about two? Is he talking about one person in his prophecy or is he talking about two? Brian helpfully set the context for us, didn't he? He reminded us that John the Baptist has been born. Elizabeth's come under great pressure from her family. They say to her, well, what are you going to call this boy? What name should you give him? And she says, well, look, his name is is John. And they sort of say, well, what do you mean? Aren't you going to call him Zechariah? That's what his father was called. There's no one in your family called John, so why are you calling him John? You've been given this baby, you've been given this gift in your old age, and you're going to waste it by calling him John? You see, names were a big thing in Israel. Names weren't just what you called someone. It wasn't just a way to differentiate, you know, Trevor from Brian. Names stood for who the person was. Carrying on the family name was the most important thing to uh, a Jewish man. And so the, the family relatives said, well, look, you're going to waste it. Call him Zechariah, call him after his father, call him after someone within the family. But Elizabeth says, no, his name is John. People see they're wasting their time with her, so they think, well, maybe we'll get a bit more sense out of the father. He can't speak, but maybe we'll get a bit more sense out of him. What do you think about this? What do you think the child should be called? What do you think his name is? And Zechariah matter-of-factly says, his name is John. Not we're thinking about calling him John, not it might be a good idea to call him John. His name is John. And it's at that point that his tongue is loosed. It's at that point of obedience to God where he begins to prophesy. And the first thing he does is praise God. We're told, verse 67, Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying. Verses 68 through 75 are all about Jesus. We'll think about those in just a few moments' time. But notice with me, please, the change in verse 76. What does John say? Verse 76, and you, child, the child in his arms, the child who'd been given to him in his old age, the child who was the gift from God to him, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. Jesus himself will be the Most High. Jesus himself will be the son of the Most High. But John, his child, will be the prophet of the Most High. He would be the one who would go before Jesus to prepare his way, to make the paths straight. He would be the one who would get the people ready. Now, I'm open to correction on this, uh, but I don't think that I've ever been to a music concert in my life. I don't ever remember going to one. But I'm told that at music concerts, there are warm-up acts. Their job is to get the crowd ready, to make sure that people are ready to receive the main act, if you like. And Zechariah knows here that's what John's job is. 
That's what the role that John has been given by God. He's the one who's getting things ready. He's the one who's making sure that people are ready to receive Jesus. That's his job, to make sure the crowd are ready. He would be the one, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to God's people. He's the one who would get ready to receive the Christ who came after him. Zechariah knew what John's role was. He knew what John's job was, and he was okay with that. He didn't demand that John had the starring role. He didn't demand that John be the central figure. Rather, he knew who John was, and he rejoiced in John's role in the plan of salvation. God's just thinking, well, what do we pray for our kids? What do we want for our kids? Do we pray for them? See, it's easy to get caught up in all the material things and worldly things for them. It's easy to pray, well, I hope they get a good job. I hope they find a nice husband or wife. I hope they get a nice home, etc. And they're all good things to pray. Don't mishear me this morning. But the best thing that we can pray for them is that they follow God's plan for their lives, is that they follow God's path for their lives, is that they come to know God. That's what Zechariah prays for John here. That's what he hopes for John here. That he would be the one who would be the prophet of the Most High. He praises God that John would be used to advance his kingdom. That John would be used to bring in this message of salvation. We should be praying that God would in mercy draw our children to himself. As a covenant family, we've covenanted to pray for the children of the congregation. Even if you're past that age of child rearing yourself, you should be praying for the covenant children of our congregation. That God would draw them to himself. That he would use them to advance his kingdom. By all means, pray for their spouse, their career, their home, all of these things. But most of all, pray that God would use them for his glory. And for the advancement of his kingdom. Zechariah knows who John is. He's not the main act. He's not the big gig. But he rejoices that God will use him to advance his purposes and his plans. So we thought about John, but then what about Jesus? What about Jesus? We see about Jesus in verses 68 through 75. Zechariah prophecies about Jesus. Now remember again, this is the, the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit has revealed this to Zechariah, verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel. Why? For he has visited and redeemed his people. That's who Zechariah understands Jesus to be. He is the one who will bring salvation. He is the one who will redeem his people. He is the one sent by God to his people. He is the one in whom God, verse 69, has raised up a horn of salvation. Now, that's quite a strange image to use, isn't it? It's quite a strange thing for John to, uh, Zechariah to say. So what does it mean? Well, horn here stands for strength. It stands for power. Think about the, the horn of a, a rhinoceros. I wouldn't fancy getting in the way of that. It's a similar idea. The rhinoceros's power and its strength lies in its horn. And so too, John, uh, Zechariah says, look, in Jesus, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. And why did God do this? Why did God act in the way that he does? Well, verse 70, 
uh, verse 71, sorry, so that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all those who hate us. Why did God send Jesus? Why did Jesus come as that baby? So that we might be saved from all our enemies, so that we might be saved from the hand of those who hate us. Now, as you read this prophecy, it's easy to understand why people got confused about who Jesus was. It's easy to understand why people thought that Jesus was going to be this great conquering king, why people thought Jesus was going to be this great military ruler. Because of prophecies like this, people said, well, look, Jesus is coming to drive out the hated Romans. Because of prophecies like this, people said that Jesus has come to lead a revolution, to set God's people free. Yet, of course, Jesus didn't come to do that, did he? He reminded his disciples, my kingdom is not of this world. He came to defeat our enemies, of course he did. He came to set us free, of course he did. But he came to defeat our greatest enemies, not our political enemies. He came to defeat the power of sin and death that reigns in each one of us. Not to drive out those who oppress us. And he would do that by offering his own life as a sacrifice for sin. That was God's power displayed in salvation. But it's easy to get lost here, isn't it? It's easy to lose the time frame where we're in. Because don't forget, at this point, John's eight days old. John has just been circumcised. He's just been named. So he's only eight days old. Jesus hasn't been born yet. And here Zechariah is prophesying about this coming Christ, about this coming king, this coming baby, and who he would be. Mary's boy would be the one through whom God would show mercy to us. The one through whom God would remember his covenant with us, that great promise that he gave to Abraham. The one who makes it possible that we might serve God without fear. And with holiness and righteousness all our days. You see, that's who Jesus is this morning. The one predicted from long ago. The one expected from long ago. The one promised way back in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3. The one who would come who would crush Satan's head. The one who would come and break the power of sin and death. The one ever since Genesis 3 that people had been longing for. That people had been looking for. As the kings came and went, they proved their failure. They proved that they couldn't be the one who would defeat sin and death. They proved that they couldn't be the one who would defeat the enemies of God's people. And the people longed for the true king of David to come. King David's greater son to arrive. Jesus, the one who people long for today, even though they might not know it. You see, there's a God-shaped hole in each of our lives. There's a God-shaped hole in each of our hearts. And our hearts are restless until we find our rest in Christ. Christmas time, I think we see it more and more clearly. People try and fill that, that hole in the midst of their lives with anything but God. You can try to fill it with presence, with creating that feeling, that special feeling, but it won't work. You can try and fill that gap in your heart with money, but it won't work. You'll just want more and more and more. 
You can try and fill it with family this Christmas time and it'll be great to be able to see family again, perhaps. But I guarantee you that by the end of Christmas Day, they'll be sick of the sight of each other. You'll be arguing about what to watch on TV and who ate the last of the mince pies. It's just human nature. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Christ. Find your rest in him this Christmas. And you will have rest indeed.